I'm Tracy Metz, and this is Water Talks. You're listening to a chant by the leader of the Yawana tribe from the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. We are gathered together at a water ceremony in Central Park during New York Water Week, where representatives of various indigenous peoples bless water taken from the fountain behind us, under the wings of the eight-foot-tall bronze statue of the Angel of the Waters. Together we chant, Water is the blue soul of life. Water is the blue soul of life. There are Native Americans attending the ceremony, such as the chief of the Ramapo Lunape Nation from the state of New York, and also indigenous people from countries from the global south, such as Brazil and Ecuador. They're here because climate change is threatening their lives, their livelihoods, and their access to clean water, even though they are the least to blame for it. This is Water Talks. Water Talks is a podcast about the 2023 United Nations Conference on Water and the New York Water Week, made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. Water is often seen as a business opportunity, a commodity, but it is also a public good. All human beings everywhere need clean water, but not all have it. Today's show is about the tension between water as a source of profit and water as a basic human right. This show is about climate justice. That's why this fifth episode of Water Talks is called Too Unequal. I came from the poor family. I know what is hunger. I know what is not accessible to clean water. I know, because I want from Delhi. I take water from the well. I walk to school. I eat only once a day. I know what is being poor. This is Maimuna Maud Sharif. She comes from the Global South, from Malaysia, where she was the mayor of Malaysia's second city, Penang, before joining the UN. Now she's the first Asian woman to serve as executive director of UN Habitat, which works in 93 countries to improve the lives of millions in cities. Part of that effort is to get water companies everywhere in the world to understand that water is more than just a product with a profit motive. Many of the water operators, they have the social obligation to people. We used to say corporate social responsibility. I think now we have to go beyond corporate social responsibility. It should be in their business model that, yes, you have the profit, but we also need to say that water is a public good, social good. I heard that 2.9 billion people are not accessed to drinking water. When we talk about water, we cannot do it alone. I think this is the time where we need leadership. We need intervention from the government. Maimuna believes that government should also intervene in improving sanitation. That is one of UN Habitat's major goals. In terms of the sanitation, when we talk about water, it's not only water to drink, it's also wastewater. I think it's always hidden, hidden, silent killer. We don't treat the wastewater, not only the drinking water, the wastewater. 
So we need to advocate in terms of communication. Whether you want to invest in your house or you want to invest in your toilet. I think there's a lot of things to do. Not only the water, I said that in terms of the pollution, but also the wastewater. And educating the people. And educating the people. When Maimuna Mod Sharif talks about educating the people, she thinks big. This goes from convincing businesses that water is a public good to helping people in developing countries understand how important sanitation is. Even remembering to turn off the tap when you brush your teeth is a big deal to her. It all adds up to ensuring that there is clean drinking water for future generations. She tells me a story about her father that sums it all up. In the village where she grew up, water came from a well or from the river. Her father came to visit her when she was mayor of Penang, and she handed him a bottle of water. And then he asked me, what water is this? I said, this water is drinking water. Is it something to do with herbs or make you healthy? I said, no, this is normal water. Why do we need to buy? Why do we need to buy water? I said, we cannot just go to the roadside and drink the water. It's not drinkable. Why can't we do that? In the village, we can just take the water from the river and the well, and then we can just drink it. Is this the same quality as our well? I said, I don't know. It's called the mineral water. In the village, it's also mineral. Then he cautioned me, okay, now you buy water. One day, you will even have to buy oxygen and carry the oxygen tanks behind you in order to breathe. That is the end of the world. What I'm asking myself, what type of planet I want to leave to my daughter or to my great-granddaughter. It's important. That was Maimuna Mod Sharif, Executive Director of UN Habitat. Maimuna is the director of a big UN organization, but she is also a mother and a grandmother. So, of course, she's thinking about what our planet will look like a few generations from now. Besides, she's from Malaysia, the neighboring country to Indonesia, where the capital, Jakarta, is sinking by 26 centimeters per year. It's so bad that the Indonesian government has decided to leave Jakarta and build a whole new capital. They are still looking at ways to defend the city. And they looked to big Dutch engineering firms. The result was a mega plan for a huge barrier, houses, and artificial islands, all in the shape of the national bird, the Garuda. This is, of course, a great business opportunity for the firms building all this stuff. Which makes me think, maybe we do need these big engineering firms to build the expensive infrastructure to protect us as the sea level rises, right? No, you are wrong. (laughs) I absolutely disagree. I love you, Tracy, but I strongly disagree. (laughs) Disagreeing with me there is Thad Poloski. He is co-director of the Center for Resilient Cities and Landscapes at Columbia University. He does not look to big business for the future of water. No, we don't need big business to solve our water problems. In fact, they've done nothing in that regard in many instances. Most of our major water infrastructure projects put communities at risk rather than actually solve water problems. We have to understand that the way that communities today are vulnerable to climate change has everything to do with the way that cities have been built up till now. And that has been largely through big business or big government or the collusion of the two. With this mindset of like, how do we get the most money out of the land? How do we get the most money out of the people? And that is not the paradigm that's going to help communities survive and thrive in the age of climate change. 
In fact, it's quite the opposite. We need to look also to our history of solidarity. What the Dutch bring to this conversation, I think, that is wonderful is the communitarianism, the egalitarianism, the consensus building nature of the way the Dutch have worked in their own space on water infrastructure projects. That's something to learn from. What works in the Netherlands doesn't work everywhere else. There's a lot of questions about whether, for instance, New York City should have a big dike around it. Dutch engineers have been promoting that idea for a generation here or longer, and uh, there's resistance to that notion. There's more and more community support for other ways to manage the sea level rise and the water infrastructure challenges that we face. And I think in general, like as an urban designer, that the world is moving away from these silver bullet solutions to these one-size-fits-all sorts of infrastructure and to look to more local and layered solutions that involve communities in their construction, maintenance, that build culture at the same time that they're building community and protecting neighborhoods. Again, I think the Dutch have given us an example of that, but it's not an example that can be repeated everywhere. That is very critical of the way the Dutch have, quote, weaponized their expertise, as he sees it. I think a lot of Dutch people are proud of their water management in the Netherlands and elsewhere, but he says that this is actually a form of neocolonialism. What does he mean by that? I think, from a historical perspective, to start, that the history of water infrastructure, especially during the the age of the Dutch West India Company or during the age of European colonial expansion around the world, the Dutch brought their expertise in water management. And these systems of water management have always come with slavery and with an extraction economy. But if we even look more deeply than that, like the fundamentals of urbanization are often premised on extraction, on exploitation, on the control of labor. So when we come throughout history to see where we've built cities, where we've made efforts to control nature. We've also seen efforts to control people. And that still happens today. A lot of water infrastructure around the world is supported by development banks, which, for instance, uh, seek to uphold a neocolonial system of debtor nations and creditor nations. And the, the dependence on foreign capital, dependence on foreign debt, has in many ways enslaved much of the global south. That was Thad Pulaski of Columbia University. Meanwhile, all the way at the other end of Manhattan, I'm sitting on a bench in Battery Park with Murta Shannon. Shannon calls himself a constructive activist and works for a nonprofit for environmental justice called Both Ends. Murta feels that when it comes to water management, only economic interest and economic priorities are considered. And that's a problem, because if profit is the only driver, only the wealthy places will be protected, and the rest of the world loses out. When you look at the way in which large-scale infrastructure projects are planned, think of things like sea dikes or sea walls or hydropower plants, they're always done based on cost-benefit analyses. But a cost-benefit analysis only looks at monetary benefits and monetary costs. So that means that the outcome is always in favor of protecting and investing in wealthy assets, 
elite neighborhood, so to speak, while systematically overlooking the needs of poorer communities. That's one of the many examples of the ways in which this economic way of thinking really permeates everything about water policy. But at the same time, Wurta, if big companies with big wallets didn't do these projects and be able to make a profit, they wouldn't get done. And they do protect millions of people across the world from danger, from floods, drought, sea level rise. I can tell by your face that you don't agree. <laughs> so that's an interesting assertion you're making there. The first one is if private companies didn't invest, they wouldn't get done. This is definitely part of the sort of the neoliberal era that we live in, that the assumption is that it's the private sector that drives change. But that's actually not really the way forward, I think, because you can't make protecting people, protecting the environment profitable in all cases. And the global water crisis that we currently have is really evidence of that. This market logic and this idea that the private sector will save us all is clearly not working. I ask Murta if, like Thad Pulaski, he feels that the way the Dutch export their water expertise is a form of neocolonialism. The fact that it's so taken for granted that Dutch experts and Dutch engineers are the ones that have the knowledge to provide the solutions for the rest of the world is in itself something that is based on neocolonial practices and assumptions. Who knows what kind of knowledge and what kind of practices and innovations might exist throughout the world that we in the Netherlands might also be able to learn from. There is very little sort of consideration of the fact that there could be a learning process from south to north as opposed to always from north to south. I think it's definitely premised on neocolonial assumptions. We actually work with a lot of organizations throughout the world that are involved in very interesting community-based water management innovations or more long-standing indigenous practices that have been handed over from generation to generation of ways in which water can be managed that benefits the common good but also the environment and there's a lot to be learned there from those practices for countries like the Netherlands as well. At the New York Water Week, Murta Shannon's organization Both Ends presented their Transformative Water Pact together with IHE Delft Institute for Water Education and many other partners. It contains a number of principles. One of the principles is that water and water bodies have an intrinsic value, not simply an economic value, but an intrinsic value which means their protection should be prioritized as an end in itself. And this is a principle that's very much inspired by the growing global movement for the rights to nature and the rights of the river. In fact, many of the organizations in our coalition are also very active in that movement. Another principle, for instance, is that water bodies are common goods and should be governed and used as such. So water is there for everybody to use and to benefit from. And this is really an explicit rejection of the widespread privatization and commodification of water resources that you see around the world. There seems to be a growing movement towards what is called environmental justice and specifically in this case climate justice. Do you see that growing too, or maybe that's just wishful thinking? So I think the movement is definitely growing, and I think that's very hopeful and inspiring. We're part of that movement as well. The urgency is growing, the recognition of this issue is growing, but it hasn't really translated to fundamentally different policies yet. So Murta Shannon may not see fundamental policy changes just yet. But when I listen to Thad Pulaski, it does seem that change is in the air. He even has good things to say about the UN conference. Bringing people together 
to form global coalitions is always a good thing. And again, something I think that the Dutch should be proud of because they've done a lot of work in this regard. So I don't want to be totally down on these global convenings. I just haven't seen the action on the ground myself. But if someone who, say, is involved in planting mangroves on the coast of Colombia and trying to restore ecosystems as a way of improving livelihoods and being a better steward of the water systems there, if they came to New York and got funding or met people that could give them valued support, that would be a great thing. And I think that probably happens. It's hard to track all those stories, but I think those are positive. Sounds to me like Columbia University's Thad Pulaski is putting a positive spin on these big international convenings. I am not convinced he's convinced. So let's end this series with Hank Ovink, special envoy of the Netherlands for international water affairs, and a man often called Mr. Water. He thinks Thad has a point, but he knows that the Dutch do bring something special to the table, what he calls partnership democracy. The Netherlands have had to collaborate for 900 years on water management or drown. More than anything, bring in the Dutch should mean bringing in a way of working together. Now that water is an issue for the entire world, we have to work together or we will fail. I think the beauty of the Netherlands water system is it is about collaboration. At the core of our water system, our partnerships that are grounded in our constitution, water authorities. A water authority is a partnership democracy. So I think if you only bring in the Dutch, you end up with nothing. If you find a way to partner with talent from the Netherlands, talent from your community, talent from your region, talent from indigenous, talent from the Germans, the Swedes, the US, talent from the Ugandian, the Nigerians, the Zimbabwe's, the Peruvian, the Chile's. It is the collaborative nature that is at the heart of good water management, good water governments, and good water valuing. In the context of the challenges we face, it is about equity and equality. For the first time in human history, we broke the hydrological cycle. So for the first time, we have at a rapid speed less and less water in our ground, and that water is also becoming more polluted and more saline every second. So that means freshwater availability for humans, for food, for energy, for industry, for production is becoming less while the demand is only growing. And the water in our skies, the evaporation that is driving climate change, now also impacts the vulnerability of our communities and environments. And climate change is only exacerbating that impact. So that broken hydrological cycle has to be addressed as a global common good. Less fresh water, but more demand. This is a stark warning. Hank Oving wants us to collaborate because we no longer have a choice. In an interview in a Dutch newspaper after the UN conference, he said, all the water on earth is no more than a thin layer of paint on the wall. And at the same time, he feels that it is a moral imperative to remain optimistic. From a global Western perspective, we give ourselves the luxury to be pessimists. And I think that is an insult to the world where the people are optimists. I choose to be optimistic. And the reason why is that every person I meet around the world, being it in a place where there is war or conflict, 
where climate is hitting, where water is scarce, where pollution is tough, where competition on water is only bigger. In all those places, people have hope. That was Mr. Water, Henk Ovink, ending this fifth and final episode of Water Talks on an optimistic note. Not everybody feels that way. Just a few weeks before the UN Water Conference, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned of a mass exodus of entire populations on a biblical scale and ever fiercer competition for fresh water. He said, rising seas are sinking futures. Here's what I think. I worry that water, and indeed the whole climate, has been monetized. I worry that the profit motive is interfering with the fight to save the planet. And that is why I made this series. It's like Hank Ovink just said. We need to work together or we will fail. Let me put it even more bluntly. The Earth has never faced a crisis of this magnitude before. It truly is a life or death thing. And we see it coming. We know it's coming. If there's one thing I hope you'll take away from this podcast, it is not just that these problems are out there, but that we can do something about them. And we can't go it alone. We are all in this together. The show notes have links to the work of this week's guests. Make sure you check it out. This is the last of the five thematic podcasts in Water Talks, but it's not over yet. Starting next week, in this same feed, we present five more shows featuring longer interviews with some of our most fascinating guests, Henk Ovink, Russell Shorto, Matthijs Bau, Kate Orff, and Rohit Agarwala. Look out for them. This was Water Talks, a program by me, Tracy Metz, written and produced together with Jonathan Gruber. Our theme song is called Into the Unknown by Poddington Bear, with additional music from Jason Shaw's Running Waters. Water Talks was made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. I'm Tracy Metz. Thanks for listening.